see the attention that To Kill a Mockingbird still gets, and I think how important your voice at the back door was in influencing and inspiring Harper Lee to win the Pulitzer Prize three years after your book was recommended for the Pulitzer, but didn't get it. Well, they voted it to have it, and they refused to give it to me. I don't know why, except Michael Gora, who wrote an introduction to my work, said that he thought it was because everybody was trembling on the brink of violence in the South, and that that might have stirred up more. He thought maybe that was why they refused to give the, the prize. It was the mid-1950s when young Mississippi writer Elizabeth Spencer published a groundbreaking novel entitled The Voice at the Back Door. It confronted politics and race, two volatile subjects in any era, but particularly during the pre-civil rights era in the South. The book won wide praise and a unanimous nod from the Pulitzer Prize jurors for reasons never explained. The Pulitzer in Literature was not awarded that year. Undeterred, Elizabeth Spencer continued to write novels, short stories, novellas. She also began her decades-long exile from the South, where she no longer felt particularly welcomed. But she eventually returned in the 1980s to teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to 27 Views, the podcast where we talk to some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in, write about, and wander this corner of the country. From the north banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today we listen in on a conversation between two great writers and friends, Elizabeth Spencer and Alan Gerganis. Alan Gerganis was featured in our last episode of 27 Views. He is a celebrated novelist and short story writer. Among his many books, his oldest living Confederate widow tells all, which has been adapted to both stage and screen. How long had Elizabeth and Alan been friends? Well, before Alan published his first short story in The New Yorker at age 26, he wrote letters thanking writers he admired. Christopher Isherwood and Elizabeth Spencer were among that group. He got kindly answers from everyone, except Vladimir Nabokov, but we'll save that for another podcast. A few years later, Alan turned up at Yaddo, an artist colony in Saratoga, New York. Elizabeth Spencer was in residence. They became instant friends. Years later, the two sat down one summer afternoon in Elizabeth Spencer's Chapel Hill home. It was 2019, a few months before she died. They talked about their friendship, the writing life, and they discussed her short story, Rising Tide, which appears in Eno Publishers' anthology, 27 Views of Chapel Hill. The story is read by actor Jane Holding. Elizabeth Spencer, I've known you for 30 years, and I've never had a chance to interview you before. This is a great privilege. There's nothing I can tell you. You know it all already. Oh, well, it's a joy to hear you say it. Alan and I talk all the time. And I, I think there's still questions I have to ask you as much as I've learned from you. 
reading you first and then finally meeting you and then becoming a friend and an admirer of, in a different way. I mean, one of the many things I admire about the work is that you're a novelist and a short story writer. Most writers, I'd say, they're either story writers or novelists, but you seem to move kind of effortlessly from one form to another. I've always wondered whether you were writing stories while you were working on a novel. Could you stop writing a novel and write a story and then get back to the a novel? A lot of my, my characters started off as short story characters, and I used to send them out to magazines, and they would write back and say, we like this, why don't you write a novel? And I thought, if one more person asks me that, I'm just going to put in a novel. So I used a lot of the characters I had written short stories about and started putting them in a novel. And the novel did well, so I thought, well, that was a good move. But I thought of myself as purely a novelist until I finished, let me see, The Voice at the Back Door. And uh, I was working on another novel, but my stories got so many awards at different times, as you have, I'm sure. I just kept on writing them. Somehow they just scrolled out. If you start one off and you don't have any idea where it's going, and that was often my way of writing a story, the characters just seem to take over, and, and pretty soon you have a whole story. Well, Rising Tide, the story we're looking at today, is a great example of a story that's really a very recent story that puts its finger on everything that's going on culturally, it seems to me. It starts with a woman who decided to leave her wandering husband and is led into the larger world and makes all sorts of discoveries about her position in the world and race by teaching at a local university and meets people that are unlike any of the people she's met before. Yeah, she's plunged into a different world. When Willard finally left that day, Marjorie didn't even watch him walk away. If she had done, she thought, closing the door, she would see, going away with him, all those types he had worked with, whom they had met at dinners, at cocktail parties, at the club, at the golf course, and their wives, too. The ones who worked were interesting, but tired, and the ones who didn't work were silly. She had liked them all, or had said she did. Those bankers, insurance men, presidents of this and that, doctors, all that bunch who ran things. But now they were walking away with Willard. She wasn't sorry. She didn't doubt he would come back for something. Divorce was wearying business, but over at last. So why, for the first time, did she feel unsteady? A sort of wobbling on her feet now that her thoughts were at their steadiest. And when, in addition, she had just received assurance of the job. Before she knew it, she was in it. She was entering a classroom full of waiting students, introducing herself, discussing, presenting, assigning papers. A student named Sabra Blaine always sat in the same place, midway back on the third row. Marjorie Collins had judged him from the first to be from some eastern country. Maybe he was from India. He was always smiling. Smiling to encourage her was the impression she got. No matter what she said, there was the smile. And when she said anything halfway funny, he nodded with enthusiasm. He got it. He understood. Arranging for student conferences, she wondered especially when his would be. He signed up for the final one at 4.30. So, in addition to going over his critique of an assigned essay, she walked out together with him after shelving books, collecting papers, and locking the office door behind her. As they passed down the hallway and waited for the elevator, 
She ventured to ask if he was a foreign student. Foreign? Oh, yes. He smiled with enthusiasm, as though the fact itself was a treasure. They were passing the grill. Please, he touched her arm. I offer coffee. For a moment, she hesitated. Wariness with students had to be observed. And recently divorced as she was, she constantly felt she was learning new rules. But he was hardly the type to concern her, she thought, and agreed. Inside at a table, he assembled everything, as though they were about to feast. Two coffees, milk in tiny containers, paper packets of sugar, spoons, napkins. Please, he kept saying as he offered items to her. Not until they both were stirring their cups did he start to speak. Walking back to her car, she wondered at how quickly they had come to confiding. It starts with a divorce, and then the girl who's getting a divorce, is, it's her story. You have to ask always, whose story is it? Well, it's Marjorie's story, don't you think? Absolutely, it's hers. And so, anyway, uh, she's glad to get rid of all the sort of businessmen people she was having to meet when she was married, and she's got a job, and she's so pleased with having a job. It's to teach business English. In the class, she founds a curious student named Samra Blaine, he, he attracts her attention from the first. And after a divorce, I imagine, I never had a divorce, but I imagine you need to start a new life of some kind. She thought she'd started that when she got the job. She really found a new life when she got to know him. I love how the story opens with her husband leaving the house for what seems to be the last time, though she suspects he'll be returning, uh-huh. and how she then imagines all the powerful white men in the community with their backs to her leaving the house. It's like the end of the patriarchy. It's like the exiting of the patriarchy before the rising tide appears. It's beautifully realized. It's very simply done. As the story continues, Marjorie receives a call one night from the police station. Sabra has been detained after a scuffle at a fraternity house. He needs someone to vouch for him. He summoned the teacher to the police station, and she finds herself in this position of testifying to his good character on the basis of their beginning friendship. Uh And without even understanding that he was defending his girlfriend or his sister friend Uh from the fraternity boys who were trying to lure her into the frat house. Uh, So by vouching for him, she winds up learning more about herself and stepping forward in a whole new way as an independent Uh citizen, not as a wife. But one of the complicating factors is that her house becomes not just an isolated marital house, but the hangout for her daughter and her friends and the college kids who come. And the passage uh, where the cheerleaders all appear at the house and make merry is so beautiful and so celebratory. Exam time was winding down. It was time for summer plans and parties before leaving. Time, thought Marjorie that evening, for the doorbell to start ringing. And so it did. If there was any word to describe how the young guests came in, it would be discreetly. They were quiet and polite, meeting Marjorie in her creamy slacks and blouse, saying hi to Elise and Carlos. Sabra wore a little cap. His tall friend had on a skirt. All were ready to loosen up as minutes passed, so that by the time they had carried their sacks into the kitchen and set to work, there were giggles and chatter coming in waves at the time. How they were organized, 
Did they do this all the time? Elise knew the whole routine. Knives and forks, paper napkins, ice for Cokes, burger patties on the grill, buns and onions. A football-sized boy dumped salad in their biggest bowl. His tiny girlfriend poured on the dressing. A cry of mustard sounded like an operatic wail. And in the living room, moving a chair, a pair of girls almost knocked down a row of blue vases, which teetered but stabilized. Marjorie held her breath over the vases, then thought it was better to keep completely out of the way. She fled into her study and closed the door. She tried to concentrate on grading. She smelled frying meat. When the door burst open, it was Sabra, carrying a plate of hamburger, potato chips, salad. Must eat, he instructed, and went to fetch her a Coke. She knew that Willard was probably thinking, of course they'll all get drunk. Not true, she wanted to reply, and was right. Out in the house, it grew quiet. They were feeding, and so was she. But then the hum rose again, increasing. Now Elise came in, wild-eyed. You've got to come. Mother, you've got to come and see. So what now? She stood on the outskirts of the swarming living room. Cheerleaders, they told her. Two were real, they said, and four more knew how. It was going to be a pyramid. A little red-haired girl in chopped-off jeans stood bravely while two more each grabbed a leg and hoisted her to their shoulders. Three more lined up below, lifting the first three. Would the redhead bump the ceiling? Almost. Which were real? Marjorie asked, but got no answer except from Elise, who said, Sabra knows one. Two were black, one white as milk. One, a limber black girl in the middle, had skin like polished jet. There were low chants that everybody knew, mounting, rising. Win, win, win! Go, heels, go! Score, score, score! Defense! Get tough! Get tough! Defense! The redhead girl lost balance. She swung side to side. Marjorie held her breath again. Broken bones were worse than broken vases. Shrieks all around. The red hair, tilting, was a flaming torch. Arms rose up to her, brown, black, and white. Hands caught her by the ankles, and she steadied. Everyone clapped. A milk-chocolate-colored boy, off in the sidelines, sat calmly beating a little drum. Sabra Blaine squatted cross-legged in the corner, looking like a cross between Buddha and Mahatma Gandhi. The pyramid came carefully to earth. Cheers. You'd think there really was a game being won. Marjorie was laughing at nothing, elated with everything. She felt excited and young. How they did clean up. Washing, scrubbing, bagging scraps and trash. How they did thank her. Elise hugged her. So did Carlos. It was great. It was great. Marjorie had not gone to bed so happy in such a long time. Brown, black, and white. Well, that's what the story is about. It's race is clouding into, exactly. into the white scene. But it becomes a kind of celebration. And what impresses me is how up-to-date the story is. It's almost futuristic. It's a kind of prediction uh-huh. of where we're, where we're headed. It's very exciting. A gauge of Marjorie's growing independence is her reaction to the repeated appearances of her ex-husband, Willard. 
he of the country club set. He's heard through the grapevine about Marjorie's friendship with an Indian man. And then there's their daughter, Elise, and her love interest, Carlos. Carlos comes from Mexico. It's a little too uncomfortably international for conventional Willard. Well, Willard keeps turning up. Oh, yeah. He doesn't want her making any spectacle of herself. And so he counsels her not to see Sabra anymore because the word gets around that she's seeing this strange man. He's afraid she's going to have too much fun, I'm afraid. He's, he's always checking in on her to make sure she's hanging out only with Caucasians. And she has the genius of asking him at the end of the story whether the woman he's seeing extra-legally is white or not. That's brilliant finding from Sabra and from all her uh-huh. studies and all her students and all her new friends is to turn on him the one question he couldn't bear. Uh-huh. It starts with a divorce, and that's the real split scene. Absolutely. That's uh-huh. the denouement, absolutely uh-huh. beautiful, beautifully realized. There, In your work, there are these moments where somebody is confronted with a situation and has a gigantic realization or a turning point. What do you think of the turning points in this particular story? I mean, she's divorcing Willard, and that's clearly a a major event in her life, and she's confronting a daughter who's living at home and is undecided about where to go, but Uh maybe going to work at the university is a turning point and going to the police station. What do you think of the pivotal events in the story? A pivotal event would be when she finds herself sitting down for coffee with Sabra the first time. That was sort of pivotal because she wasn't supposed to do it. You're not supposed to fraternize with students. Then that very odd fight he got into, that was a pivotal part because she wound up defending him. But it's fun to see this story in relation to Light in the Piazza in the terms of white, upper-middle-class Caucasians coming to terms with people of another race and trying to make an adaptation to a different system. Uh-huh. I, I see some connections there. The voice at the back door, I don't know how many pivotal points there are in that, because that's a rather complicated, long novel. I see the attention that um, To Kill a Mockingbird still gets, and I think how important your the voice at the back door was in influencing and inspiring Harper Lee to win the Pulitzer Prize three years after your book was nominated for the Pulitzer and I think it had advanced racial vision. And, you told me that. You, and you judged that. she essentially downgraded it to a 10-year-old's vision of the South. And that was palatable, and that was popular, and that made it possible to consider. But your book is a much more adult and complicated and political piece of work. It's, it's an immensely important book. And it, like the story we've just talked about, it holds up to political criticism as well as literary criticism. It really stands independent and uh, as a kind of beacon, kind of truth-telling that's inevitably confusing and alarming to some people, but it's absolutely necessary. Well, I hope so. And I think it had a huge influence on Eudora Welty writing her piece about Medgar Evers' killer. I mean, it was oh, one yeah. of those, Where's the voice coming from? Where's the voice coming from? I mean, her title was clearly borrowed from your title. Oh, you thought that's right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, your daughter was a good friend of mine. If any of you read her work, she's really great. She lived in Mississippi. She was a kind of mentor early on, wasn't she? A mentor? Oh, no, I don't think so. I just think we were friends. Friends, yeah. I don't like the word mentor. <laughs> Do you? I have a couple of mentors that I can cite. That uh-huh. I accept that for in one or two instances, but I think friendship is the cr- a crucial element in being a mentor and a mentee. You know that trust is very important. But I know she respected your work and admired it very much. Well, she helped me on the way. 
she and Robert Penn Warren were the supporters of my first book. And I think you can't go wrong with that. Oh, no, that's Robert the, the Penn best. Warren was a good friend, too. He was a fantastic writer. He was a writer. princely man. He was a real gentleman. Elizabeth also had the love and support of someone very important to her back home. So I was very close to my mother. She was a very sweet person. She brought me up reading to me from the very best books, and so I didn't get saturated in a whole lot of junk. She used to read to me constantly. I love to hear her read. You start off with uh, old favorites like Alice in Wonderland, of course, and Wind in the Willows, stuff like that. It was wonderful, I thought. But she also read to me Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and all those books. Elizabeth attended Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, and graduate school at Vanderbilt University. Afterwards, she taught at a community college, published a few novels, worked for a newspaper. In 1949, she spent part of a summer in Italy. She returned there several years later after being awarded a Guggenheim and set to work writing a novel about racial justice in small-town Mississippi. I got back home after I'd spent a good deal of time in Italy, and I viewed the South in a different way after I was abroad because I had just accepted things as the way they were was absolutely sacred. And then I saw how terrible it was, the racial question and all. Sort of opened my eyes to be at a distance. That came home and that awful murder of Emmett Till had happened. And nobody was talking much about race, but you felt they were all frozen on the subject. And you didn't bear bring up anything. I had just finished writing The Voice at the Back Door. I wrote most of that when I was living in Italy. And uh, I realized how close it was getting. It was getting very close to the whole problem. My mother went around saying, aren't they going to do anything to those men? She, it was almost like a mantra. She used to chant it all the time. My father just refused to talk about anything about race. He just wouldn't do it. And he didn't join the citizens' councils, which were just next door to somebody said they were the Ku Klux Klan in shirts. He didn't ever join that, but he said they're just trying to keep order, and that's all, all he would say anything about. My mother screamed about it a lot. But my father was a very authoritative man. He wouldn't put up with any argument about anything or even discussion. My mother read everything I wrote, but my father refused to read anything. He read my first book, and he was alarmed because here was his little girl that knew (laughs) words like damn and hell. (laughs) It made a rift in the family that they never got over as me as a writer because, you know, they just thought of me as their little daughter. I think that confronts every writer, though. The family doesn't think of you as a writer. You're just somebody they brought up among them, like all the rest. Don't you think that's It's true, but I think telling the truth in Mississippi of that period took a special courage, and I admire you very much for telling the truth. So many people admire that book and keep coming back to it. Well, it's going to be in Library of America. No, you're up there with Henry James and... You're on your way to being that. Well, thank you. I, I, you're, from your voice to God's ear, thank you very much. But with Mark Twain and Willa Cather and all the great American writers, it's fantastic to know that you're safe. Oh, yeah, Willa Cather, Ernest Hemingway, all the big big names. Uh, Edith Wharton, yeah, all the, all the biggies. Uh-huh. Fantastic, and you you belong there. It's so fantastic to see to see you recognized. We, we met, well, it's a very it. pleasing thing to have happen, which means that my work will be perpetually in print, which so, is really pleasing to me because 
writers are always wondering if their books are going to run out of print, and that won't have to worry anymore. We've been listening to a 2019 conversation between two great writers and friends, Elizabeth Spencer and Alan Garganis. They've been discussing Miss Spencer's life and work, in particular her story, Rising Tide, which was featured in 27 Views of Chapel Hill, a southern university town in prose and poetry. She was the author of nine novels, including The Voice at the Back Door, The Salt Line, and The Night Travelers as well as short fiction collections such as The Southern Woman and Starting Over. Her novella, The Light in the Piazza, was adapted to stage and screen. She also published a memoir, Landscapes of the Heart. She won many awards and was a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 2021, two years after her death, Library of America issued a forever-in-print edition of Elizabeth Spencer, Novels and Stories. Alan Gerganis is an award-winning author whose books include The Practical Heart, Plays Well with Others, and Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All. His short stories have been published regularly in The New Yorker and were recently collected in The Uncollected Stories of Alan Gerganis. Alan is also the subject of a previous episode of the 27 Views podcast entitled At Home with Alan Gerganis. You can listen to the entire reading of Elizabeth Spencer's story, Rising Tide, from 27 Views of Chapel Hill, on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. The story is read by actor Jane Holding, who is a good friend of Ms. Spencer's. On the show notes page for this episode, you will find the recording and lots of other great information about Elizabeth Spencer. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision are by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Elizabeth Benfey and Ezra Rawich. Special thanks to Alan Garganis for his excellent interview with Elizabeth Spencer and for his invaluable assistance with this podcast. And to Jane Holding for her fine reading of Rising Tide. Thanks also to Elizabeth Matheson, who suggested this conversation between these two literary greats. Music for this episode is entitled Inseparable by Ricard Fromm. It's available on Epidemic Sound, and you can find a link to it on our website. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Quarry in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Lechron. Please join us next time for more stories and voices of the South on the 27 Views podcast.